The sermon text for today is from Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, to th and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Let's begin with a recap of what we've done so far in the book of Acts. Uh, we're a few weeks in now, but if you remember, the story began with Jesus appearing to his disciples and telling them that you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, all the way to the ends of the earth. But then he told them, not yet, just wait. Wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. Then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, this amazing, miraculous moment. And then Peter, he preaches this amazing sermon and at the end of the sermon he says to the crowds you need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and then you will receive the Holy Spirit and they do and 3,000 people we're told come to faith that day now if I had never read this book before and I was just kind of paying attention to the narrative and going to guess what happens next I would assume at this point, now that we've gone from just a couple of people to 3,000 people, this would be the time when people go and scatter to the ends of the earth. I'd imagine that this would be the moment when all the individuals go off and they start to be witnesses like Jesus talked about. But that's not what happens. In fact, it's kind of the, the opposite of what happens at the end of Acts chapter 2. Instead of going off as individuals we find out that this group of people becomes a spiritual family. And that their unity and that their togetherness and that this new life that they are living has this dramatic and transformative impact on the world around them. I love this passage. I've preached on this passage probably half a dozen times, preached a half a, different dozen, half a dozen different sermons on it. Um, I love it because it's this glorious picture of what the church is meant to be. And if we're being honest, this church, the, the Acts 2 church, it doesn't look like uh, what most of us think about when we think of the church today. It doesn't look like what most people in our culture imagine when they imagine the church, right? We think about the church and we think about an old building filled with a bunch of religious people, people who sing weird songs and then sit around and they listen to a pastor whose sermons are either too boring to stay awake through or too uh, emotional and exciting to really understand where they're going. Uh, the church is either, on one hand, this dull, lifeless meeting that seems like it's from the past, or it's this overproduced, emotional, inauthentic show that people attend. And it's no wonder if, if that's what people think of, if that's what people see when they see the church, it's no wonder people don't want anything to do with us, right? 
This week I heard an interview with a comedian and he was talking about his upbringing and why he had left the church after growing up in it. And he said something that really struck a chord with me. He said, you know, the church uh, has all these great promises, but there's really no substance to them. It's full of a lot of people who put on fake smiles, put on happy faces, but there's actually no room for the real problems in life. He said the church has these great promises, but it's empty and hollow. It's not real when you get there. Well, if you look at Acts chapter 2, what you find is the exact opposite of that, right? What you see in this passage, when I read this passage, I find something that is so eminently desirable, right? I read this and I say, I want that. And the good news for us is this morning, this isn't a pipe dream. This is what the church actually can be. It's what the church should be. And it's what we are invited into as the people of Christ. So today, that's what I want us to do. I want us to kind of dispel all those wrong notions that we have about the church. And instead, I want us to look at this picture and ask, what's the church supposed to be? And then, is there any hope for us? So let's do that. Let's, let's break this apart and see exactly what Luke is showing us. What is the church supposed to be? There's a few things that stand out to me uh, as I read this passage. The first thing that we see is that the church is a people grounded in truth who respond in corporate worship. The church is a people who are grounded in truth and they respond in corporate worship. So the Holy Spirit this amazing, powerful moment happened. These people, they experience the conviction of their sin. It says they're cut to the heart. And then they receive forgiveness from God. They repent of their sins. And if you're a Christian, you know this experience. If you know Jesus, you know the experience of seeing your sin for the first time, of being cut to the heart, of, of repenting, and then receiving his grace and mercy and forgiveness. And if, if you're a Christian, you know that that moment of salvation, it's just the beginning. When you encounter God, what comes after that is a hunger. It's a longing to know more. It's, it's to find out exactly who he is, to get to know him, to find out more about what he has done for you. And that's exactly what happens in Acts 2. It says the first thing, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, verse 42. The church, firstly, we see, it's founded on the teaching of the apostles. And uh, that's not some abstract, mystical thing. You might read that and say, well, I wonder what they had to say. It'd be great to have the apostles' teaching around now. I wonder what that mysterious stuff was. Well, it's not mysterious. Uh, it's right here. It's the New Testament. What the apostles taught was written down and recorded for us. They taught about who Jesus was. They taught about what he did. They, they, they gave the testimony of Christ's death and resurrection. But not only that, they, they, they also gave us doctrine. What it means for us. Why it matters. I think one of the biggest reasons why the church... And really the church in New England, like the church in Boston, the church in the United States, if you want to look a little bit larger than that, I think one of the reasons we are failing is because we are ignorant of God's word. 
I kind of don't know what to do about it as a pastor, honestly. Like, I I don't want to get up here every week and just give you a guilt trip about not reading the Bible. But the fact is, we don't really know what's in it, right? Most of us are, are pretty ignorant of the Word of God. But that's what this is. This is the Word of God. That's what we believe. We believe that the living God who created everything out of nothing spoke That he gave us his word. That in this book we have everything that is necessary for life and godliness. And we don't even look at it. It's like dusty in the the back seat of our cars. It's under a bed somewhere. We hardly give it five minutes a day. I'm willing to bet that in our congregation we spent more time learning about the history of the fire festival this week than the history of the living Son of God. It shouldn't surprise us that the number one thing that is mentioned as vital for the life of the church, when it is neglected, when it is absent, the church suffers from that. These are the words of life. This is where we find out who Jesus is. This is where we find out how we can know him, how we can grow. It dispels the wrong ideas that we have about God. And through it, the Holy Spirit speaks to us and he draws us into worship. Right? That's what I said. That The, the first thing we notice is that they're grounded in truth, but then they respond in worship. When you know the truth of God, when you learn this stuff, when you find out who he is and what he's done for you and what he continues to do for you each day, then that actually, that's going to make you worship. The apostles' teaching, that was just the beginning for this early church. They weren't just listening to the apostles, but it tells us, the passage it goes on, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Uh, For whatever reason, the ESV drops out the definite article in front of bread. Um, But I I disagree with that decision. I actually think that those things are all there for a reason. I think what what he's showing us goes right along with further on, verse 42, where he says, uh, day by day they were attending the temple. Um, Those prayers, the prayers, I don't think that's just an informal time of prayer that uh, Luke's telling us about right there. I, I think he's telling us that that they're participating in the life of the temple. They're participating in the regular prayer liturgy that they've always participated in, but they just wanted to be there. They wanted to be worshiping together. They wanted to be breaking the bread. They wanted to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. They were worshiping together. So that's, that's their response to knowing what God's done for them. That's the first point. The, the church is a people who are grounded in the truth, and that makes them respond in corporate worship. And that's challenging for us because we are an incredibly individualistic people, right? We believe the opposite of this, don't we? That that authentic faith is a personal and individual faith. That our job as as real believers is we got to break free of that old dead ritual stuff we got to break free of those traditions and we got to experience something new, something authentic. That's how you, how you know that something is real. And that's not, a necess- that's not necessarily bad to feel that way, right? Of course, you can be stuck in old dead rituals. You can come to church every week purely out of a sense of duty. 
You can tithe because you think you're paying God for the sins you've committed this week. That's wrong. That's, a, that's not real faith. But on the other hand, it is incredibly arrogant of us to think that we can figure out everything there is to know about an infinite holy God in isolation, all by ourselves. That we don't need the history, that we don't need the theology, that we don't need the doctrine, we don't need the fellowship. And I see this all the time, especially you know, we're, we're a relatively young church, right? People, people my generation and younger, I see this as, as even more prevalent. I remember, uh, I think there's just uh, this attitude amongst us that we don't need the church. That the church is something extra, maybe something old, maybe something outdated, but not necessary. I talked to a guy a few years ago now, and, and he told me he was a Christian and Um, But he told me he would never come to church because he feels much more connected to God on the ski slope on Sunday mornings than he does at the communion table. I think maybe we've all heard those things. Maybe we've all thought those things. But I wonder, what spirit is behind that? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it the Spirit of God? Because this is how the Spirit of God interacts with his people. Or is that the spirit of our culture? Is that something else? Here we see that when the, when the Spirit of God sweeps in, the people desire to know the truth. And they, they're doing everything they can to be together in worship. Now again, I know that you're not surprised to hear this from me, right? The pastor, he's going to get up, he's going to tell you, read the Bible and go to church. That's what I do, that's my job. I don't want you to feel like this is some guilt trip I'm putting on you. I don't want you to feel like this is a weighty burden. Or even worse, you know, since you're all here, I really don't want you feeling good about yourselves either. (laughs) I don't want you feeling self-righteous. Well, we're the ones. We do come pretty much every week. What I want you to see is that these Christians, this is not an action that they're performing. Their heart is behind this. This is what they desire This is is where their hearts are. It's not not just about some actions. It's their natural response to the Holy Spirit moving in their lives. The church is a people who are grounded in the truth and who respond in corporate worship. Secondly, what we see is the church is also a people who are together. All right, this is the second point. The church is a people who are together. Now, I'm listing it second because it comes second in the passage. But it's not less important. What keeps the church from becoming this dead and lifeless thing is that the church is a people. Right? The church is founded on doctrine. And that doctrine, like we just said, it leads us into formal worship. But that's not the sum of the church. The church was never meant to be a series of meetings. The church is not a building. It's not a service. First and foremost, the church is a people. The gospel, at its core, that's the message. Christ came for his people. And when you become a Christian, that happens when, by repentance and faith, 
You become a part of the people for whom Christ died. That's what Christianity is. That's what 1 Peter tells us. He says, you are a chosen race. You Christians. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here's how Peter sums up the gospel. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's what the church is. It is the people of God living together in faith. So we worship in this building once a week. Maybe sometimes you, you might go to a Bible study too in the middle of the week or a, a breakfast or, or some other thing. But meetings, that's not what it means to be the church. Look back at the passage. Open your Bibles. Look, look with me. Acts 2, verse 43. It says, Awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to any as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now there's a lot in there. We're not going to be able to unpack all of that. We're going to come back to that part about sharing all their goods. We're going to spend a whole week on that in a couple of weeks. But, but for now, just look at this picture. Look at these people. These are not a group of people who belong to the same gym. Okay? These aren't the people that their kids go to the same school your kids go to. They're not the people that you bump into once a week and then you have some small talk with them. You know, you talk about the weather whatever. Try not to look at your watch too much while they're talking. That's not what's happening here, right? These people, they are, they're doing life together. These are real relationships. The church is not just an activity that they have prioritized. It is their identity. The church is who they are. There's this uh, pastor named Steve Timmis who wrote a book I love called Total Church, where he, he talks about this reality, how in our culture, we have fallen back into this thinking where, where church is just one thing among many. He says, you know, most, most Americans, uh, most people living in the United States, we have this kind of list of things that we do, uh, and we're kind of juggling all these different priorities. So maybe one ball that we juggle is our, our home and family life. One is our, our job you know, maybe it's our, our hobbies, and maybe one of those is the church, and we're kind of all juggling these different things all the time. But then occasionally, you know how it is, you get into a phase where one of these different balls requires more of your energy, so maybe things get busier at work. And in order to keep the things going, you got to put something down, and a lot of times we say, well, I'll just put the church down for a little bit until I get things back together. That is the opposite of, of of what we see in this passage. The, a better way to think about the church is, is not that it is a, a ball that we juggle, but instead that it is the axle of a wheel. That, that we live our lives out of this thing and everything else kind of falls in place around it. And that means 
that, that for the Christian, when, you're, when your life starts to get crazy, when things pick up at work or, or when things get crazy at home, that's not the time to put, get out of the church, but it's actually the time to lean into the church. That's when you need your brothers and sisters to, to rally around you and to pick up the slack. You know, that's when we start cooking meals for you, right? That's when we start coming over and, and watching your kids. That's, that's the picture we see. It's, it's not, a, not a, a thing to do, but it's the people that you are a part of. Or think about discipleship. Think about our model of discipleship. How does that happen? How do you become more like Jesus? How do you learn more about what the Bible teaches? Is that just going to happen here? Let's pick a specific thing. You know, how do you become a better uh, Christian parent? Now, for people who aren't parents, it's just an illustration. I don't want to leave you out. I'll think of something else later for you. Um, But how do you become a better Christian parent? Well, are you going to learn that just by coming here once a week and then once in a blue moon we're going to come across a passage where somebody's going to preach on parenting? Or are you going to learn that by living amongst godly men and women as they parent their children and seeing what they're doing and seeing their, their grief and their failings, seeing how they rely on Jesus? That's how we are going to disciple one another. It's not through meetings. It's through community. The church in Acts, it wasn't just coming together for formal stuff. That's what I'm saying. It's not just that they were in the temple. It says they were in each other's homes, breaking bread, hanging out. I'm sure if they had a Super Bowl back then, they would have had a Super Bowl party. The church is is not just an organization. The church is an identity. The church is a people who are together. That's the second point. The church is a people who are together. And then the third thing that that really stands out to me in this passage, again, there's a lot of stuff here, but I see in this passage that the church is a people who relate from their hearts. I mean, look at all the emotion in this passage. Look at all the feeling words that come out. First of all, we see that, that awe came upon every soul. We see that they had glad hearts, generous hearts, that these people were were praising God. Or verse 45, you see the compassion of these people providing when they found out that anybody had need. There's joy, there's gladness, there's awe, there's there's fear, there's there's compassion. When when the Spirit of God filled up this church, this Spirit-filled church, it was a people, right? That's what I said. It's a people, not a place. They're grounded in the truth that draws them into corporate worship. But it also moves their hearts. There's a ton of joy in this church. But they're not joyful because everything was good. The joy wasn't just because their life was super smooth. In fact, we know that's not the case, right? There were people with great need in this church. People whose needs were so great that the only way they could provide was by by selling their belongings to help meet their needs. And another thing I love about that is you realize that the people who had needs, they felt the freedom to share those needs. They felt the freedom to ask for help. They felt the freedom to, to bear who they really were and what they really needed. And somewhere along the line... In the last 2,000 years, 
We have gotten off course with this. Somewhere along the line, I fear that the church has stopped being a place where people are really able to bring their need. If you don't believe me, let's see what time is it. In like 30 minutes, the service will be over. And you're going to start talking to each other. And, and somebody's going to ask you, how was your week? And what are you going to say? Fine. Pretty good. I'm doing great. That's, that's how we've learned to relate to each other. That's what we do. But that's not what they did. This spirit-filled church was full of joy because they could share their burdens without fear. Some of these people, you know, they had been Jesus' initial followers. And we know from the gospel who those peoples were. They, were. they were a mess. Some of these people, probably within the last few months, had been prostitutes. Some of them had been uh, swindlers, right? They'd been extortion artists. They'd been tax collectors who robbed from the poor. Some of these people were, were paralyzed men and women who hadn't worked a single day in their life. They had a lot of need. But now their lives were changed. They're following Jesus. Now, I'm sure that first church was, was full of messy people. Those people who had, had big problems. But it was still filled with joy. These weren't perfect nuclear families with steady incomes. This was a church that loved each other and related to each other from the heart. This was a church where you could really bring your need. It was a place where you could really bring your heartache. Where you could bring your doubts and your fears and your concerns. And nobody was going to tell you to hide your brokenness. Nobody was going to tell you to put on a happy face. Instead, they responded. The community rallied together to meet those needs. Their hearts were glad and generous. And the people were in awe of God. Because in that community, God's grace was tangible. God's grace was real. You know, these people, in the, the passage right before this, confessed to crucifying Jesus. And God forgave them. If you had to confess to that, if you were able to admit to that, why on earth would you need to hide anything else? What could possibly bring more shame on you than that? But they knew that God forgave them there. So of course, God had grace for them everywhere. And that's true for us, right? That's what happens when you, you know the power of God in this radical, heart-filling, real kind of way. And you know what else it tells us? It says, when that happened... When they lived like this, the world saw it. They knew that this community was legit. They weren't faking it. They worshipped God from the heart. They hung out together because they had become a people. Not because they had meetings scheduled. The church wasn't a place 
where everybody wore masks and said they're fine. It was an authentic community of real, broken people who had been redeemed. And everybody wanted to be a part of it. It says they were praising God and they had favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I think that's really neat, right? Jesus says, go be my witnesses. But the church didn't have to scatter off to to do that. They didn't have to scatter around the globe to become these independent evangelists. Instead, the church itself was so word-centered so love-filled, so dynamic and powerful that the world just couldn't help but be transformed by it, to be drawn into it. And folks, that's what the church is supposed to be. That's my point. This isn't just a history lesson. That's what the church is supposed to be. A people who are grounded in the truth, who respond with corporate worship, who live together in community, and who relate to each other from the heart, who share pain and And as a result, have deep joy. It's pretty amazing. But it's also a little depressing, right? (laughs) You read it and you say, well, what what about us then? Is there any hope for us? Well, this is the, the, the second point. Is there any hope for us? Of course there is, right? In fact, I want to mention, you know, as, as the pastor of this church, I have seen some wonderful things here over the years. I've seen God using you all in these wonderful ways. I have seen living communities form. I've seen you hang out with each other. I've seen you build genuine relationships with one another. I've seen people share their hearts authentically with each other. I've even seen us growing in the truth and, and caught up in worship at times. But I do want more for us. I do want more. And there's only one way we're going to get that. There's only one way we're going to get what these people had. And I think it has to start the same way it started for them. I think it starts with repentance. It starts just like it did at Pentecost. By allowing the Holy Spirit to show us our sin. To bring us to the point of conviction so that we we look at our lives and we say, what are we going to do? We've sinned. All of us. That's true, we have. Whether you're in this building every single week or whether this is the first time you've darkened the door of a church in a really long time. The truth is... All of us are guilty. We have all rejected God's invitation time and time again. We aren't this. We are not like this people in Acts. We've neglected God's word. We've neglected his truth and said we've filled ourselves up with these empty things and we wonder why our souls are feeling empty. Why our souls are starving. Why our lives are unfulfilled. We've neglected meeting together. We've treated this as a low priority, right? They say, well, I'll come if I don't have something else to do. If I, if I don't have work, you know, if I don't have, if I'm too tired from staying up on Saturday, I'll come. 
We've treated worship like it's a duty. We have no expectation, no belief that what God says is true, that his spirit is present here in a unique way, that his grace works and interacts with us here in a way that doesn't anywhere else. But even more than those things, the truth is we're guilty because we have been judgmental and we have been shallow in the way we relate to each other. We've hidden ourselves from each other. We've worn these masks that, that cover up our pain. And we have robbed others of the opportunity to be the voice of God in our lives. Because of our hiding, we have stolen God's power from the church. But the good news is, in the midst of that failure, in the midst of that, that shame, Jesus' promises, that's where they have the most power. When we're the most weak, we realize that he's the most strong. See, Jesus promised when he was on earth that, that no matter what, he said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Our sin, our enemy, our idolatry would tell us that there's no hope. Would tell us that this kind of vision of the church is unrealistic in 2019 in Boston, Massachusetts. But scripture tells us something different. It tells us that, that our God's alive that his spirit is still on the move. And if, if we want to know this kind of spirit-filled church, not just a nice, pleasant worship service, but a living community, this constant, real, tangible reminder of God's power and grace in our lives, if we want to know that, if we want to know his power, then we got to become weak. Amen. We need to be cut to the heart by our sin. We need to take it seriously. we got to become utterly familiar with the fact that we can't bring anything before God except for our broken lives. If we want this kind of belonging, if you do, if you find yourself longing for what's in this picture, wanting this kind of forgiveness, if you have this kind of thirst to really know God, well, the truth is you can't do that on your own. You can't produce it. No amount of effort is going to make that happen for you because you're too sinful and you're too broken. You're too much of a mess. But the gospel is this. In our brokenness, in the rubble of our sin, God picks us up. By the grace of Jesus, he washes us off with his blood. And he pieces us back together. He builds us not just you, but all of us together. Scripture says on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus as the cornerstone. And then the whole structure, as it gets built, is joined together and made into a temple for the Lord. We become a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. God takes our brokenness and builds us into the church. And so that's my call to us this morning. It's a pretty simple one. It's to repent. It's to get real. It's for you this morning to admit your need. And for us to be real with each other. 
to open our hearts to each other. And let's let the Spirit do that. Let's let him build this place into a real house of God. Let's pray. Father, I, uh, I'm thankful as I look at this because I know it's easy to be pessimistic. It's easy to, to look at passages like this and see a glorious holy thing and feel bad about ourselves. But Lord, these, these were not glorious holy people that you were using to do this church. These were people just like us. People with great need. Lord, we have a great need today. We need you to move. Please come. Bind us together. Give us a deep love for one another. Move in our hearts, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.